Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, John. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? Oh, I got to stuff down some food real quick. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> reading to Alexandra and sending her off to bed. Oh, was that successful? Yeah. Well, I'm here anyway. (laughs) Hey, Matt, how are you? Hey, John. Let me just get a little bit collected and I'll be just right back. We want the full collected, Matt. Hey, I really enjoyed the Jordan Daniel Wood podcast. Uh, Oh, good, good. I mean, I would agree with his own assessment in the end. I don't think there's that much of a significant difference between him and Hart. I do think Hart's making some key points that are not abstractions, though. Jordan has obviously read Bulgakov, too, so he may just not think of those as that central of points in his own mind. The idea of Sophia. Well, it's not just that. It's realizing that, you know, so sometimes even to have a conversation about nature and grace, it's to realize, and I think Jordan was saying this, we can have this sort of conversation from our point of view. And so you can talk about, uh, you can ask questions like, well, does nature precede grace, etc. But, and as Jordan even said, it's not like that's a real order. Uh, once you understand or once you say something like, you know, God is the simple God is the one who creates all things or creation ex nihilo or even his point, creation is incarnation, then that order doesn't make any sense any longer. So Bulgakov is always holding the two things in tension. And he says things like, you know, you have a co-eternal but dependent creation or you know, it's it's just simply to say that God doesn't begin at some point to create. Well, if that's true also about Christ's own created nature, then when we say, as you said many years ago, the incarnation or even the cross is an eternal fact about God, uh, what we're saying is that this doesn't add to, in, in classical theology, that's always the case, this does not add anything to God that's not already present. Hart's emphasizing that, and I think what he sees as being so great about Bulgakov's work is that Bulgakov just works out these implications that were always in the Nicene tradition up through Chalcedon and beyond in a sort of relentless way that many people have not done because it seems to uh, make us uncomfortable. We're in, I even like Jordan's assessment, though, is something that I would agree. It's as if we're just so used to picture thinking. So and you can look at examples of this throughout the history of theology, like with Augustine. Augustine's big hang-up with becoming Christian, really, was that he was having trouble imagining God and evil as not two things, uh, both, well, just two things, things with bodies, things existing in some way. He finally overcomes that, and that's when he realizes that, one, he can be a Christian. He fully accepts privation theory, on the other hand, etc. Well, you have to do that same kind of what Lonergan would call intellectual conversion and thinking about the doctrine of the Incarnation. And the words that I would use that I noticed Jordan never did is you begin to talk more not about 
created and uncreated, uh, although that distinction's fine, but it's what is that distinction pointing to? And it's contingent, not dependent on it, simple, simplicity, uh, or it's complexity. And and so I, I think that's something that Hart is emphasizing, not because he thinks that what it means to get to know Christ, or when we talk about the Chalcedonian formula as person, is just an abstract principle. But it's because anytime uh, you move through this process of an experience with a person to saying something that's true and can be shared, is always a move from potency to act. And so that's why Hart lays the emphasis on where, where he does. Because for Hart, there's no, in God, there is no potency. Well, but Jordan would say the same thing, surely, right? Mm. So I, that's why I said I think Jordan was right about there not being that big of a difference. But it is Bolgakov says it. I was, you know, Bolgakov just says this so plainly, and I think that's what Hart appreciates and what sometimes missing. So here, Paul, this is a quote from Bolgakov: "The creation of the world begins only for the world; it does not begin for God." The creation of the world exists for God in his eternity, and in this sense it is equi-eternal equi with God. But that which in God is eternal is revealed for creation only in time, and here only truly needs a translation from one language into another. Even though creation has God's creative activity is temporal for itself, it is eternal for God. God in his eternity creates the world for time, and therefore in time. Here, one is a genuine transensus from the creative activity to creation, from act to fact, from eternity to time, and vice versa. Coincidentia oppositorum, the identity of things that are distinct and opposite. The temporal world, the world that exists in time as well as time itself, can be understood only in connection with eternity, which is their foundation. Conversely, eternity has its image or reflection in time. So I like that. I, agree, I, like I think Jordan would agree. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, hundred percent. Hard is saying though, you have to keep this up front and center when you're having this conversation about Jesus, and that leads him to this kind of monistic streak that he's been on here lately. And because what he's saying is essentially, sure, we could talk about the two things. Sure, we could talk about human experience, but all of that has to presuppose some preliminary oneness or wholeness, or you wouldn't be able to make sense of those things anyway. And so the real problem with even entertaining, uh, and Jordan was willing to entertain it because he's coming at it from this perspective of experience, this hard and fast distinction from human nature and the divine nature is that for Hart, he's just saying, well, what those words mean when this discussion has been had throughout the tradition of Christianity having this discussion. It's essentially like somebody saying that an orange can have as its final goal being an apple. And that's non it's a nonsense. And so Hart is saying, if you're going to make sense of what personhood is, it can't be that it changes into something diametrically that it's not but rather that it already has, not just by virtue of its end, but also of its origin and source, the fact that this unity exists in God already. Bulgakov is calling that sophiology. Okay, yeah. I, I don't know if you read my blog on, I was just recounting on Jordan and Maximus on the two beginnings. Mm-hmm. 
It may or may not pertain, but that's part of the idea that in a kind of what Maximus is going to call a false beginning, and I don't know if this was Jordan's word or not, but he talks about a false incarnation. Yeah, I yeah, think. yeah. And I agreed with I, I liked that. So it, it Hart's point doesn't really pertain to that so much as rather the you know this the sophiology, the wisdom, the is is essentially you're trying to describe something like how God does not begin to create is that the idea of creation is already always at once in God by virtue of God's love, uh, not by God's will. And so that's the true beginning, right? And in it's unfolding in time. And so, and so this is actually where people like Lonergan or Austin Ferrer's an Anglican or, um, well, I guess Thomas Aquinas, though, that's up for debate. Uh, people argue about what if Tom what Thomas is saying. They're explaining how, uh, oh, oh, it's Philip the Chancellor, the theorem of the supernatural is basically explaining how that doesn't, so take this idea of everything existing in the mind of God by virtue of God's love. It's not fatalistic. It doesn't take away the ability for human creatures to do what they will in the here and now. But those choices that we make in the here and now don't ultimately define what reality is. So it's, uh, in other words, one way of putting it is God's love has the final say rather than uh, false incarnation. The lie doesn't get the final say. Right, right. Yeah, I, even, you know, even in Maximus, he he goes to some length, first of all, to say, to make an absolute distinction between nature and God. Mm -hmm. But of course, where he's going with that, he's doing that with all of these categories in a sense. But uh, the picture of nature is that it, though, he still can talk about I don't know if he uses the phrase natural potency, but the idea that within nature there is, in other words, that that humankind can act either according to their nature or against their nature. Yeah. And so there's still the sense that in in the natural grace, there's never a, a an ungraced nature, yeah. I don't think. And so I think the the key there would be just to point out that what Maximus is doing in his distinction is not the same thing a two-tier Thomist would be doing. And that's who Hart's really aimed at, is, yeah, you know, yeah. aiming all of his arguments against. So how Jordan fits into that or doesn't, I think they could probably work it out, is what it sounds like to me. You know, it sounds like more of an issue of clarity on some things rather than a, a disagreement that couldn't be solved. Did the third part live up to your all you'd hoped it would have been? It was good, but no, I didn't. I, I mean, I guess I just don't. I don't know that from what I've heard of Hart, I would not say that he's reducing personhood to uh, a sort of principle or an abstraction. I think rather that this is the case of, you know, you could do it from the way Jordan was doing theology, sort of from experience, uh, that you could actually say that that is the way that we get to know people is through experiences uh, unfolding the unveiling truth of the other person through a relationship. It's not as if we don't actually make judgments about those people and ourselves. And any judgment is always a move from potency to act. So that when Hart wants to say things that may sound like abstractions, 
actually what he's doing is just describing that move from potency to act. Anytime you make a statement after your mind has made the move from potency to act, it's going to sound more like something that is objective rather than subjective. But the key there, uh, and I know Hart would agree with this part, is that that objectivity only comes in and through authentic subjectivity, which is the Lonerganian, that's Lonergan's catchphrase. So what does that mean? It means that we're not actually reducing things to sort of uh, classicist versions of themselves through abstraction, which is what philosophy has done and that's what has happened in this very discussion but at the end of the day we still do come up with not so much maybe that we shouldn't call them principles or laws but we can come up with true sayings and when we do so they reflect that movement of potency to act so that we're not just left with uh human experience being well, this is the way it seems, or uh, a one-sided sort of event. In other words, there is a participation even in the divine. And I, I, this is what I like about Bulgakov, is I think what's happening there then is we're catching an accurate understanding of the way things are as they are according to God's own wisdom, which, of course, is the outworking or overflowing of God's love. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not claiming. In other words, I, when I ask the question, I, it was, I didn't have the answer, but I have heard Hart refer to Jordan in kind of disparaging terms. But maybe that's just Hart. Maybe he oh, just, really? yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I've tried to find Hart talking about this difference. And usually the way it seems like Hart really appreciates and thinks a lot of Jordan's work. He does, he, just, he does. He's getting this one point wrong. And but I would say that the point that Jordan brought up and said he still wants to hang on to, even if he is just hanging on to it from a human point of view, Hart's right. That doesn't make sense in the end. You got to let go of that. Uh, and that's this idea. It, 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 I've heard Hart talk about it more starkly when he's aiming this at the two tier Thomists. But it is this idea that you could have, you know, these two natures not already resolved in the oneness of God, because, because essentially what you would be saying is something like, well, there's this human thing that is completely coherent in and of itself, and what its final end is, is something other than what it already is. And that is illogical. And so if that's what we're trying to say, then I understand why Hart's dismissive. But I think what his point really is, is that this is a way of having the con and I, I heard this and i heard this from jordan is basically saying well maybe that's not the best way to have the conversation in other words it seems like jordan was trying to say i would talk about it in other terms or i would uh i would have this conversation differently and i think it's trying to get around our worry over this issue but bulgakov i think has a different way of coming at it which is simply to say the in as much as what uh, you could ask it this way what's more real about all things is it the fact that they have already existed for god outside of time and space so they've already existed for god and true uh, perfection eternally in god's wisdom or is what's most true the temporal unfolding that we experience and you only get the possibility of false incarnation in the temporal unfolding and the bible says this god doesn't know evil it's it's illogical for god to know evil 
You can't work that one out. And yeah, we talked about how Origin, he's like unflinchingly says that evil is not worthy of God's knowledge. So yeah. he will not relinquish that territory. He says that this is why our Lord Jesus can say things like, depart from me, I never knew you, and really mean it. Because he's, you know, whatever it is that, you know, and by the way, he says, you workers of lawlessness or sin, right? So the origin says that that's because you quite worthy, you quite literally weren't worthy of God's knowledge because God's can only know in that sense, the good, mm-hmm. which is profound. That's a profound yeah. point. I think it is interesting that I think origin hits this point when he's talking about creation. Apparently, uh, you know, Gregory of Nyssa is, is saying the same sort of taking the same tack when he's talking about creation. And certainly you're getting it in Bulgakov in these sort of like straightforward, very blunt statements. And I never heard Jordan disagree with any of it. And so that's why I think that they could have some reproachment between the two of them. But I think the difference is hard is saying you have to emphasize this. Uh, when you emphasize this, this is where your theology takes off and is... Um, you know, headed in the right direction in the sense that it will not go down. It's not susceptible to the sort of dead ends that you find in Calvinism or two-tier Thomism, uh, which all tend to make the same sort of mistake, which is to, you know, on the one hand, you have God becomes a creature. On the other hand, you have uh, sort of everything relates to God according to God's power or you you have this this idea of a conceptual total separation between humanity or creation and God. I, yeah, I think that there's been so much written in those veins that's just incoherent if you've grasped this point that Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, I guess Maximus, uh, Bulgakov are all make. Rowan Williams makes this point in his book on Christology, and he does so through Karl Barth and Bonhoeffer. So it's not like uh, it can be found in lots of different places, and maybe not consistently. And I think this is what Hart's saying: is Bulgakov is one of the most relentlessly consistent thinkers on this point, and that's why he finds so much good there. What is the thing that Hart's saying? You have to emphasize this. In, in just short, in kind of a short answer. That uh, you could talk about it in this way. This is the, my words, not anybody else's. But essentially that it does not make sense to talk about God creating at a point in time. So the, the way to best think about creation is uh, equi-eternal with God. Except you have to then say that it's contingent. Or it's, uh, you know, it's not God in, in a one sense, right? But it is already being understood, at least in the divine sense, as one unified sort of whole with God that from our temporal perspective is always a falling away from that or it's a, it, it's the uh, exodus and reditus. It's the going out and returning. It's experienced in time as, you know, temporal that we can make choices. We have space to move and to uh, lie, to experience untruth, to undo decay, et cetera, all of these things. But you can only make sense of the sort of seemingly paradox. This is an interesting point between Milbank and Hart. Milbank loves the idea of paradox and Hart 
doesn't want to put up with that very much, right? <laughs> and he doesn't. Uh, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, but you, you can only experience you can experience these provisional dualisms in the temp time and space and temporal reality only because there is a unity. There is the whole that is the uh, it's Bolgakov. It's the Sophianicity of all of this. It's the it's what exists in the wisdom of God. And Paul, isn't it interesting that it was precisely on this point all those years ago that you wanted to depart from Jack Cottrell, say, yeah, right? Because I think that you saw the implications of where this was going. Even wait, what was that in the six, like the late the sixties, or I don't know when that was, but the seventies was it back in the thirties or forties? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so but that was a big deal for you, right? Like you you saw. I don't know that you saw all the implications, of course, at the time, but you saw that this was a, a major point of departure, that the time is a creature, the God is in no way subject to time, space, matter, all these different things. And what was the, you know, what, what was Cottrell? He just said, that's not right? Or what, what, where, was, where was he coming from? He said that God exists along a timeline. Which is, I think, how most people pick. And Jordan said this. That's how most people imagine the sort of thing and picture thing. I think it's right. Yeah. And Cottrell, you know, he tried to, he, he did try to distinguish kinds of time, you know, uncreated time and created time. But he was just, he was basically just saying, no, God exists along a timeline. And, and uh, I kept saying, but you understand you're making time absolute and God subject to time rather than God the, than being the creator of time. And he just would always act befuddled when I would say that. Like, he couldn't. There was a kind of incomprehension. I, I don't know. It's interesting. I was thinking about the title, You Are Gods. And, of course, Hart's taking that from, you know, the Lord Jesus who's quoting the Psalms. And just it's such a succinct way, you know, that this is said in the Vedantic tradition, you know, thou art that, or there's different ways of um, sort of expressing this. But it's like the R is the almost like the mediate the mediating principle in the between the subject and the predicate or, or whatever. You know, it has to do with being or, or whatever. And uh, it's just such a beautiful way to think about, you know, who what a human being is and i get and that and that's the to me the profound point of what hart was doing there he lays it right out in the in the intro of the book where he talks about um that well what this must mean is that uh god has always been human and humans have always been divine so therefore that you know the the, the matter of time that paul was just describing there that kind of circumvents right the that that issue of making time like this absolute um, or this law or whatever you'd want to, uh, put it. Cause it's always been, you know, we just did the class on Ephesians and, you know, it just starts right there in the, in the first couple verses that, you know, you, that we're seated in the heavenly places, you know, with Christ and that we've been given every spiritual blessing and all the in other words that from that, um, how do you say it? Subspecies eternity or whatever the, you know, the, the point of view of eternity is that, we are God, that we're with God, that we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ, that we're sort of from our perspective um, moving along this continuum. And we are, we are subject to time and to death, which may in fact be uh, something intertwined. In the book of Revelation, so there's this really interesting thing that happens. At the beginning and the end of the book, God will say, the Godhead will say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then 
Jesus repeats, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And at the end, it's the Godhead from the throne of God, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then the Lamb of God repeats, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. What What is going on here? Well, it can't mean, I don't think it means, uh, you know, the beginning of time and the end of time, right? And so what's going on here? And what you also get, I think, is that the Lamb of God is the one revealing the world according to God in the book of Revelation, the Lamb who was slain. But the it's almost functioning as an ego a me like in the Gospel of John. So God can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, and so can Jesus say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Personhood, the person of Jesus Christ that you meet in the book of Revelation, is revealing not only the face of the Father, but also revealing the deepest truth of all things, which is to be the source of Christian hope, also in revealing the Father. Which, I mean, I know that the John that writes Revelation is not probably the John who writes the Gospel of John, but wow, that's similar. That's a similar idea. So what you have then is what it means to be a person, a human being in the world, experiencing time, seeing this and then that, and then uh, the end, which is another repetitive cyclical theme in Revelation, developing in the interval between the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ, uh, the God-man, revealing to you the face of the Father and the deepest truth of all reality. And that is where, uh, the in, in the book, that's really the context for human beings finding salvation, access to the tree of life, access to life itself in God, uh, go returning to the garden, this sort of the return, right? And so I was just working this out carefully in that, or maybe not so carefully, that what is going on or what is what could be being described, or, or maybe it's not in the book at all, I don't care, but this is how you ought to deal with revelation, uh, allegorically or spiritually, is we can come up with an account of human personhood as arising from uh, the personhood of Christ, which is identical then to the life of God, the give and take that gives rise to the Son. And then also it is the, the what do we say, the economic trinity that essentially reveals the imminent trinity to us. But the economic trinity also reveals the truth of ourselves and the truth of the world to us. And so I was just talking through that along these lines. You know, this is God making us God, essentially, because it's the name of the Lamb that is placed on the foreheads of the human beings that are going to enter into the garden and eat the tree of life at the end. And that name in no way diminishes uh, their identity or takes away from them, but rather it's the fulfillment of who they are. And this name is the name of the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one that can reveal uh, the Alpha and the Omega that is the Godhead, the life of God that we don't comprehend or see. It's kind of cool depending on how you think about it. But, you know, the first 10 words or so in English, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, it's like right there you have time, space, matter. You know, in the beginning, you have time, uh, God created the heavens, you have space and the earth, which is like matter, right? But then origin and his commentary on Genesis, very. and when I read it the first time, I was like, it was almost kind of confusing because he says, 
something like you understand that this beginning doesn't have anything to do though with like temporal time because the beginning here christianly understood is jesus christ well, you know and i would say bereshit doesn't even translate as in the beginning so we're <laughs> wed to this idea because yeah. of james bible right but uh you know the rabbis will also point to the fact that it's curious that the first book of the torah begins with the letter bait uh it says the second letter in other words it is, it is more like uh you know when god began to create sort of thing is the mm -hmm. way to translate bereshit or as god was uh, beginning uh, anew almost like there could i so some people have pointed to it's like oh well there could have been another creation right creation that it's not but uh, I think we could read this sociologically just to say, well, truest creation's already there in God, in God's wisdom. It's eternal. Yeah, I mean, I always thought that, you know, Breshit bara Elohim is like, um, there's no definite article. It's it's kind of, it almost seems like it should be like in a beginning was, you know, or something like that, right? But Breshit I don't know much about Hebrew. Translate. It's not a translatable it, word. Mm. You know, it's sort of a... So it's a made-up word, in other words. Yeah. Uh, so what you're yeah. saying about sophiology is that it has both an uncreated and created aspect to it. Um, yeah, uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The, the, but that's what that's what Bulgakov is saying. That sophiology, that Sophia, exactly, precisely, he says that that so that there's both the created and uncreated Sophia. And that's, I thought that's what you were referring to, John. That I think it is, right? I mean, that is what, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's why he gets in this trouble of talking, you know, some people say, was oh, he talking about like a fourth hypostasis or whatever like that? You know, it's like, it's almost like a fourth person of the Trinity. But, you know, I can't pretend I've just begun to dig into Bulgakov. I've read like three or four of his books, but I can't, I, I need to go back through um and, and you know read some of his stuff specifically on you know the divine sophia uh, i actually really liked it i loved his stuff on the burning bush you know on the theotokos he's got um jacob's ladder on the uh, on the angels he's got the front of the bridegroom on um you know john the forerunner and he's doing like a christian anthropology and angelology of course he's talking about what is it like the deus icon you know with you have Christ in the middle of the Theotokos, you know, to the right, uh, St. John the Baptist to the left, and then you have the trail of the saints, you know, on both sides, and they all have their hands up, you know, like this, like in the prayer. In other words, that they're all sort of praying together, but in the Theotokos and in the Forerunner, you kind of have like the uh, the fulfillment of woman and, and man, you know, in there. Bulgakov has such nuance and stuff, right? But, but he's um, saying that, and John might be able to correct me on this, but He's saying that what their great sort of victory was is that they were subject to original sin, but they didn't, you know, give themselves over to it. They still died, you know, that, that John is sort of like the the first man or like, you know, Jesus says the greatest man ever born of a woman that Theotokos, of course, gives birth to our Lord Jesus Christ all the time uh, is always sort of, you know loving him nurturing him so in other words Bulgakov is doing like this profound christian uh, ecclesiology and anthropology um but the the sophia stuff gets pretty complicated and there's all sorts of different readings but i'm certain that he talks about a created and uncreated um it, sophia yeah, yeah, i think well, that, i think that what he means is probably the human the human you know sort of element right it would be the created sophia but that there is the uncreated sophia that is uh, he talks about that's like the um 
and again, I don't want to uh, betray Bogakov by not you know getting his nuances and stuff like that. But the, in other words, Sophia has a role in creation. Uh, in other words, right? So that means that there's none created Sophia that has a role in creation. You're and why I stuttered for a second was I was trying to remember where De Lenoval has Roberto De De Lenoval has a great introduction to the spiritual diary where he lays some of this out. It's fantastic place that I've ever found it. Anybody that can read that book um, should. It's the spiritual diaries of Sergei Bulgakov. I think is the name of the book, and it's it's just such a wonderful. Yeah, it's such a one. It's like one of my favorite books I read last year. Let me read you a long passage from this, and then you tell me what you think, Paul. Yeah. But what is the self that the Spirit reveals to us through the beauty of the saints? It is our ideal image in the mind and heart of God, the Sophionic self. This brings us again to Bulgakov's teaching on divine wisdom or his Sophiology. Bulgakov's writing on Sophia is multifarious and complex evolving over time in response to new discoveries and challenges, but the ecclesial ascetical core of the teaching remains stable throughout his entire theological career. At the heart of the doctrine is the insight that God's creative intent for the world, the ideal image or sophionic image in which God rejoices, struggles in this life to become a reality on account of human sin and rebellion. Bulgogov can consider the question of Sophia an abstraction from sin, of course, in a theoretical mode. We may call such a perspective the creative as opposed to the redemptive. In the creative framework, which is the state of things before the fall, the world and God's original design constituted the artistic recreation of the eternal ideas that together make up the ideal organism, the divine Sophia. The wisdom that existed with God before creation and whose joy is with the sons of man. This is God's art, to take the ideal images of creaturely realities, plunge them into nothingness, and let arise the world of becoming and matter, in which the ideal images function as causes but also as norms for creaturely existence, both forms and um, intellectes in the Platonic and Aristotelian language Bulgakov borrows. Such a world is by definition incomplete. For the balance between nothing and being is unstable and creation can revert to chaos should the garden not be properly cultivated. If matter is not transfigured so as to become transparent to its sophionic basis. Yet no part of God's earth is as metaphysically unstable as the human being. For unlike the other creatures who do not share in rational freedom, each person is created incomplete, awaiting the subject's own self-creation. The world was only pre-created in the human being, who had to create himself from his own side with his own freedom and only then enter into possession of the world having brought to realization the general plan of creation. Ascesis, then, was proper to humanity even before the fall. Had humanity rejected the temptation to elevate the creature above the creator, the divine likeness would have shown through making art in Ascesis one. When the divine image, the ideal image, will be fully manifest in creatures, then the gap between ideal and real is overcome, and matter closed the intelligible world of God's creative ideas and resurrection flesh. Oh, that's just great stuff. I mean, that's a true picture of of co participation, you know, co participation, or the way Bulgakov is describing it is God's art 
and it's our contribution to his, you know, and isn't there a passage there that, you know, we, um, I forget, I think Hart translates it in a way that's like that we're God's, um, it's the um, Ephesians 2 passage that, you know, we're his sort of workmanship, but it's like his artesian, I can't remember the exact word that he uses there, but that we're his work of art, you know, but we get to participate the in the actual creation, I guess, right, of our um that, that that's the thing that Bulgakov is getting at with the Theotokos and with John the Forerunner is that they're choosing Christ, that they're choosing God, that they're choosing uh to be truly human, that that's their great victory over, you know, quote unquote original sin. Uh that it's not that they weren't born with, you know, the ability to die, but uh that they were born, uh, you know, subject, you know, that they they both died, you know. Um, but that they were full participants uh, in their own creation in Christ. I think maybe it's origin. I can't remember who uh, he's reading the Psalms, and in the Psalms then is detecting origin. It uh, may be detecting, you know, there's that Christ is creator, or or he doesn't use that language. He actually talks about the Father creating through Christ. And there is the the there is the uncreated wisdom of Christ, but then there is the created wisdom of Christ through which the creation comes about. So might I just add that this distinction is not one from Greek philosophy, but it's actually this profound biblical distinction between one way of looking at this from the creaturely perspective is redemption. But the other way of looking at it from the wisdom of God is as creation. So that's how you can say, well, incarnation is creation, or creation is incarnation. And what that would mean is that there is no, in no sense, uh, is there a humanity that has not, humanity has always meant in that sense becoming God. From the side of redemption, it's not that there is, and this is the problem maybe, is that we would interject some sort of try to understand this philosophically. It's not that humanity or human nature then is somehow closed off to or distinct from the divine life, but rather from the side of redemption, uh, that where it's, it's rebellion is the best word I can think of it, I think. Because as as you all talked about, sometimes when you talk about fall, we just mean all the already the the createdness, the being, the provisional distance between us and God. But of course, that's all that's made up. It's not real. In other words, God is already is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. I've got the uh, the the reference here. The way that Hart puts it, starting in verse eight, for you are those who in grace have been saved by faithfulness. And this God's gift is not from you, nor from observances, so that no one may boast, for we are his artifact, created in the anointed one Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance, so that we might walk in them. God's artifact. We are the temporal manifestation of the wisdom and love of God. Yes, that's good. As you were saying that, I was thinking of a quote from Maximus in which he describes the kind of mystery that you're that you're describing. This is the mystery which cir- circumscribes all the ages and which reveals the grand plan of God, a super-infinite plan infinitely pre-existing the ages, an infinite number of times. The essential word of God became a messenger of this plan when he became man, and if I might rightly say so, revealed himself as the innermost depth of the Father's goodness, 
while also displaying in himself the very goal for which creatures manifestly received the beginning of their existence. And in this same piece, he goes on and talks about that here is the mystery revealed, but it is still a mystery. It's still something that it's articulated, but it's beyond articulation. It's seen, but it's beyond being seen. And he uses this kind of language in which we've encountered this thing in the person of Christ, but in some way it's, it's overwhelming. It's still an overwhelming mystery. And I think that's kind of what you're describing in being, that this thing is just, it, it is this kind of encounter with something that is existentially beyond us. Yeah, it's two things that Jordan Daniel Wood said that really stuck with me um, in that interview. And I told him the first thing is that whenever he said that God is is raising children, that the purpose of creation is for God to raise children. Man, that's a great, that's like a great heuristic or whatever to think about what it means to be human, that your father in heaven is is raising you up, you know, as he's taking you by the hand, he disciplines you, you know, et cetera. He loves you, you know, and the other thing that he said, and this is from St. Maximus, that I, that I just, it's so mind boggling that I hope I get it right. But he said something to the effect of that humans will become divine to the same degree that God became human. Fully. <laughs> it's a, there's That's, a, to, a total identity. Fully. Yeah, there's a total identity. But I mean, this is the amazing thing that God's kenosis, that he lowers himself and to the same degree that God lowers himself to become human that humans will be raised up to become God to the same degree, Maximus says. This is where thought, like there's an end to thought. What must like, that mean? That, that is, that's what Hart's working with when he talks about the part that I didn't like. I don't think Hart is doing some abstract principle. It, it's just that idea. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that God being human and humans being God is already compatible. So there's nothing yeah. about your humanity that is incompatible with being divinity. That's amazing. You are gods. But to imagine that, what would that mean for me as a, like I just described, for like a local, sort of localized psychological drama or whatever, you know, to to become God to the same degree that, you know, Christ, be, you know, the God became human. Like, what, what does that mean? Nobody's going to jump on that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a wonderful conversation. I'm sure glad we could do it. You're going to have to, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get super good at editing, editing, man. You're going to, they're going to like call you to Hollywood. And oh, some, yeah. 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 Actually, I was kind of proud of the, the way our talks with Jordan turned out because they did, it turned out to be three neat segments. Mm. We never planned well enough that that actually happens, but it, it yeah. did happen to, that way. So. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that, that you included both the introduction to the talk with Jordan. So your job, you know, your job as an editor always, you know, is to make people look good. That's well, really what the job of the editor is. So, you know, just with you, if me or John said something that was weird or too, or too, you know, bleep out the F word, whatever you got to do, you're going to have to do some stuff. Yeah, I, so the part that makes me nervous about you including the first bit is I said, I think this is the difference between Hart and what I really don't know. We need to get Hart. We got to talk to David Billy Hart. And I, I liked that Jordan was basically resigned himself not to being in the academy, uh, but also just thinking of like, 
what's wrong with us that we get so neurotic? That's what we do want. Ever, right. I've never talked to somebody who's enjoyed it. It's miserable experience. <laughs> you know what I mean? It does sound it's terrible. And and I think that Paul's right what he was saying about, you know, think about the stuff that Paul that you've done um since you're since you broke with Central. It's like it's so much better. I mean, yeah. it just is. I mean, I loved it when you were Central. It was my favorite part of Central. But once you broke out of that, I mean, you've gone to heights that you never would have gone. You know, you just wouldn't have been able to. It held you back. And that's why I mean, whenever John said you know, I don't think I'm going to do, you know, the PhD or whatever. It's like, well, if you want to do it, cool. If you want to be, be whatever you want to be, but you know, do have fun, man, do it, do it. Cause you love to do it. And you want to go get out of bed every day and you want to work on it. And it's something fun that you like to do. And you know what I mean? To me, that's kind of like the, the blessing of life, you know, as to like that God is, you know, we could have been digging ditches, man. We could have been cutting down trees and working on the roads or whatever. You, you know what I mean? So I think it's like a real blessing that we get to get up and, you know, help people for a living and read or whatever it is that we do. And, but yeah, I, I meant that when I said to Jordan, I'm like, well, it must not be a position worth having if you can't get it. Like it must not be, it, it's, it's some silly thing if they're worried about, oh, you know, we don't want to have someone who's too, you know, you don't fit into the Roman Catholic mold or whatever it is. It's like, well then dude, then be a stay at home dad and just write. We'll read what you wrote and raise your kids and we'll, you know, it'll be awesome. And somebody's going to, you're going to get somewhere just cause you're a great, he's, and he's cool. He's a, you know, he's really likable and he's got, he's brilliant, you know, so he can, he can do whatever he wants, but yeah, I, you're right, man. It's like, it seems like it sucks. Yeah. I, I, I must say that, uh, I'm enjoying, I'm having a lot of fun and taking the cream, you know, the cream of what we were doing was having the conversation. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's sort of become the full-time part of this. So yeah. I feel like, yeah, I'm having more fun. And, and by that also, there's obviously a lot more freedom. Time flies I gotta write a fun. blog still. Oh, come on. Not tonight. I'm finishing up one. I'm doing part two of my uh, uh, examining George's last chapter. Uh, you know, there's something to be said for, this is more about my SMU cohort. Theological writing does not have to be a burden to read. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's right. I just read some stuff sometimes like, you know, you could remember that you're asking somebody to read this. Yeah, uh, John Milbank kind of set the, the the bar as low as you can get on that. Yeah, it's so terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Like, it's terrible. Like, it shouldn't have to be that way. I think yeah. that that's why Hart sells so many books. He's fun. To, he's a great writer. He's a, he's fun. He's fun to read. You know, um, there's a ta there's an art. You know, to it. You know, I mean, really, there's an art to it. You know. Because, yeah, like, I think he, Hart even said that he was like, man, I feel bad for people who just, like, read theology, like, all the time. It's like, what a waste, man. Read some fantasy. Read some, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you, you know, read something fun. I mean, it's a lot of drudgery. Like, I love reading Origin, but it's like, you're putting some work in, but there's some gold there. You know, you really That's are mine. Translation, probably as much as anything, you know. I mean, it's the distance and time between you and him and the yeah. I mean, actually, that was a bad example because actually, I, I find Origin really fun. Like, I open up Origin, I'm like, "Oh, this is fun to read." He's just a, a good recent translation. Yeah, well, his homilies actually, his yeah. commentaries are kind of hard, but his homilies are just they're short. They're, they're reading awesome. uh, Philip Schaff's version. It's like, yeah, 
I think Matt, you sent me that the what you just quoted Hart as saying is in an interview with him, and he basically says something like, "Well, you know, I mean, I write theology because it's my day job, but yeah, like that's not real life." And, <laughs> I know. I was kind of bummed out when he said that. I was like, "Really?" <laughs> my favorite blogs that you have written were stuff like where you would tell a story. You know, like I remember the story. Like I remember the blogs where you were talking about you were in the like in the West and you were out, you know, riding yeah. your horse and stuff, and then like. I remember the ones, you know, we always joke around about the one you shuffling around in your robe and your slippers thinking you were going to die. Like, those are the ones that stick with me because it kind of, it connected with it. For some reason, it like it, it, it had like this human connection where it was like, you know, I mean, you know that I don't mind doing the, like the tedious metaphysical stuff, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's like, who cares? Nobody cares for one. You're just trying to, and all you're doing ever is you're describing some reality that's ineffable anyway. And the, the worst people are the people who think they figured it out. It's like, one of my blogs I had the most fun with was actually describing liberty. Yeah. It, it kind of fit with our conversation tonight. I described, you know, just I just described my typical Sunday at Liberty. And I go in, you know, the beginning of church with the men are standing around and Dale, who who almost never says anything, just a quiet, you know, humble man. But he started telling this story about his daughter who got a new car and it was an Audi and the tire on it was deflated because the Germans had so precision engineered the wheel well that they couldn't have air in it. And then there was no way of inflating the tire. And he went through, you know, the tow truck came and they couldn't inflate it. So he told me the story, about a 10-minute story. And then Larry came in, and Larry hadn't heard the story, and he repeated the story word for word you know that didn't leave out anything but then nina plays on the piano you know come ye oh come ye and we all go forward and then you know we have sunday school and that week larry larry has this thing about kareem abdul jabbar they're all basketball players by the way they, hmm. in missouri i don't know what it is but and he just thinks kareem abdul jabbar there's no human being better than him wow and the the thing that does he know about his activism well and the thing that always mystifies him he said why did he become kareem abdul jabbar <laughs> why did he convert to islam yeah and you know i try to say well you know for black and black experience you know that's a that black christians becoming muslims that's not but he never, you know, he never listens to that. And then Lois was there that day, and we got to, she got to talking about reincarnation. And that, you know, she believed that every, even Hitler would be saved in his reincarnate state. Uh, everybody, you know, at the end of the lesson, everybody seemed pretty happy, content with what was said. And we closed out the lesson for that. <laughs> it's just the mystery of being. I had there was actually more in there about the cemetery that the cemetery plot. Larry's a little afraid. You know, we got these cemetery plots, and they're only sixty dollars. But he's always a little nervous. He, he that the interlopers will come in and want to uh, and want to be buried out there. 
that you know they're not real particular there is a uh, ed shearer is there he they hung him and but they went ahead and buried him in the cemetery uh, he pointed out the grave yeah he's down there in the corner oh wow uh, so i i end the blog i don't i don't think larry needs to worry about the interlopers but should you want there are 60 dollar plots and all they require is the investment of a total lie <laughs> see that's good yeah that's good that's, that's that's the kind of thing people want to read yeah yeah i don't think anybody read that one but i always liked it so matt yeah. i know you don't like long sentences i remember this you know where I, I i learned that from back in the day when you were editing paul's book yeah and i was working on the the index or whatever Mm-hmm. Paul said, you know, Matt doesn't like long sentences, but I think it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were some long sentences in there. But in the in the vein of writing things that uh we like, I, I want to share just this one sentence with you that I you'll read you could read it anyway, but that I the thing I wrote for Paul, I thought this this sentence is just so good. Actually, it's two sentences. Um <laughs> Or three sentences, whatever. But I said I started out in the parlor of a grandly decrepit Episcopal church. We began to create a community of people becoming whole, integrated, healed, like moribund flesh as individual worshipers bound together by the felt need to allow the Protestant Episcopal Church to submit her doctrines and liturgy along with the Holy Scriptures as opinions to be considered by rational minds. We endured the malaise of mainline Protestant decline mm. as a community of Christians, though. We grasped for the potency of ancient ideas reborn toward a politics of friendship, which constitutes the politics of God's eternal community. But I just love making fun of the Protestant Episcopal Church. I love writing it out that way. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's still the, the technical name, the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America. Yeah. No, it had, it had like a, a nice, like, um, like the, the great writers always say, like, make sure you read your stuff out loud. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, like whenever you write it, make sure you read it out loud and 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 hear the rhythm and hear the sound and the the you know the the pulse or whatever you know that you're writing you know and make sure it's something that you would want to hear like music because what you were just doing sounded a little bit like music you know it's like it should kind of flow I think like that if you can but it's hard to do yeah you know but when you write that sentence and you think man that was a good sentence there's, there's a really it's a good feeling you know good. there's yeah. been so many bad ones you know it's like hitting a good golf shot you know you know actually one of the best phrases I and I only get see I, I have to move to another church now because I've already used it here that I got from Paul is just I was awoke from my dogmatic slumber. Yeah, that that was like a, that's like a, a turn on the Kantian. Uh, yes. um, yeah, I stole it. You stole it from Kant. Yeah, you stole it from Kant. I gotta go to bed, man. It's almost one o'clock. Love right. you guys. All right. Great good, talking. Good conversation. We'll Thanks for guys. being a good editor, Paul. Uh, Just remember, right. remember us, remember us in your kingdom. Right. All right. Make me look bad. Yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, 
please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.